happened in me inwardly. Okay? So that's what baptism is. And we're commanded to be baptized. And so as a reminder for you today, if you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism as a believer, we'd love to talk with you about how God's at work in your heart. So, Brandon, brother, I'm going to turn it over to you, okay? There's a microphone there, so they should be able to hear you. Well, you stole most of my thunder already, Steve. But, uh, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, like Steve has said, um, you know, this is my amazing, beautiful daughter, Maya. And um, we are missionaries in Argentina. Me, her, her brother, Malachi, and mom, my wife, Crystal, um, sent out by this church. And if you receive our newsletters, then you know kind of a consistent prayer request that we always have is the salvation of Maya, the salvation of Malachi, that they would love Jesus, that they would follow after him. And so it was about a year ago, Maya, start, like Steve said, started asking a lot of questions about what, um, what is the gospel, what does it mean to be baptized, the Lord's Supper, and all these. And we were really excited. And Crystal asked, you know, is this something that you want to do? Do you want to become a Christian? And like Steve said, she said, no, I'm not ready. And which at the time, you know, it's kind of sad and everything, but it's encouraging to us when we get to this point after... Um, I got the opportunity to preach at Noble, and then Rob shared the gospel at a funeral. And then Maya came to us and said, I'm ready. I believe. I want to be a Christian. And um, a couple nights later, I was sitting on the couch with Maya. We talked about what it meant to be a Christian, that it was salvation and through, and it was salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, and that it wasn't by just our works. It's not by works that we're saved, but it's through faith alone. And so she said she believed, and that night she prayed and asked God to forgive her of her sins and wanted to trust in Him. And so we're glad that you guys get to celebrate that with us today. So Maya, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Very good. Do you believe that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, a life that you could not live? Yes. Do you believe that He died a death on the cross in your place? Yes. Do you believe that three days later that he rose again? Yes. Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? Yes. And are you committed to follow him the rest of your life? Yes. Very good. Well, then upon your profession of faith, my daughter and my sister, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. sinful that loves us even though we don't deserve it and that you save it you save us despite our sinful nature despite our rebellion against you lord you love us and you save us lord and so i'm thankful for my daughter i'm thankful for maya that she has placed her faith in you that she is love that she loves you lord i pray that you would help her to grow up to be a woman of god who desires nothing more than to make much of christ and to do much for the kingdom, Lord. So I pray that she would grow up to be a godly woman, Lord. I pray that she would um, grow up to do great things for your names. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you um, that we're only able to celebrate this because Jesus did come to this earth and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins and three days later was rose again, Lord. And we're able to um, become Christians. We're able to be part of your family and we're able to um, 
be baptized and celebrate like this because of what Christ has done, Lord. So we love you, we thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's the way to start off the worship service this morning. And before we continue... All right, are we good? Good morning again. You can probably tell that I'm extremely nervous. I have sweat stains everywhere. <laughs> but it is, it is really good to be here. It really is. It's always good to be... Uh, you know, we stress to our kids that Argentina's home. Home is where the family is, but I mean... In all honesty, you know, we're leaving home to go to our home. And so Mount Carmel is always, is always home for us as well. Um, but during the baptism, you might have heard me say that if you, you know, if you get our newsletters, then you know that we've asked prayer for Maya. Um, just on that note, we have put a sign-up letter in the Welcome Center and then on the back table in the back there. So if you're not getting the emails... Um, it's a great way for her to stay up on top of what's going on in our lives, what's going on in Argentina, and a great way to encourage us just to reply to the email, say, hey, we're praying for you, and that means a lot to us to, whenever we receive those. So if you haven't signed up, if you haven't got the newsletter, um, please do that. And also, if you do not have plans for lunch today, uh, my family and I, we are going to be going out to the park and very informal, we're just going to grab lunch, probably wherever Maya wants to go. And we will grab lunch and we will take it out to the park just to hang out. So bring kids, play, or come uh, stop by, talk with us, um, say goodbye. I mean, if you can't make it, it's no big deal. We'll see you in two years, so don't feel obligated. But um, So today is our last day, full day, um, in the States, and then tomorrow we fly out, so... In all, it was an honest joke, but in all sincerity, you know, I hope that you can come out and say hi, um, rejoice what the Lord's doing in my life, and to kind of say bye. And we'll see you again in two years. So if you would, go ahead, turn to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 20. So Romans 15, verses 8 through 20. And um, before we actually read the scripture again, here we're going to be looking at, you can, I think the title's on the handout, but it's called A Holy Ambition, Reaching Through Teaching. So we're going to be looking at the portion of scripture where Paul says, it is my ambition to preach the gospel where it has not been preached. And so kind of leading up to this, you know, I was like, oh, it'd be fun to contrast this between some not so good ambitions in life. And of of course, there was plenty of examples of stupid people on the internet, so I found a couple that were my favorites that I'd like to share with you. And so, first of all, have you ever been on social media, on Facebook, or even reading an online article? And the article can be super sincere. It can be a very important article. It could be very touching. It could be very sad. And they say something in the article like, oh, the people that were there, and they spell there, T-H-E-I-R, and so even though the article could be really, really good, you got that one person that's in the comment section that's saying, this, this person's so dumb. How, I can't even read this because they spelled there T-H-E-I-R instead of T-H-E-R-E. Um, well, there's a guy named Brian Henderson, and he is an editor for Wikipedia, which Wikipedia is like an online encyclopedia. They don't even get paid, mind you. But he has spent, or he has every Sunday night, he devotes his time and his energy into correcting the phrase comprised of. 
I thought it sounded good, so I had to click on it to actually find out what's wrong with it. But I guess grammatically you're supposed to say composed of or consists of. Brian has spent his whole life, well, not his whole life. He has spent a big portion of his life every Sunday night going through by hand and editing tens of thousands of articles and correcting them. Or... This is actually this guy. I would kind of like to meet this guy, but it's still a really bad life goal. Another guy, Ryan Beats. <laughs> He's got a goal of owning every single copy of the movie Speed, the VHS tape. But you know the movie with Keanu Reeves where it's the bus and they can't go under 50 miles per hour? He's made it his life goal to collect every single copy of the movie Speed. And what started as like a joke of buying six of these copies to give out to all of his family during Christmas opening has turned into an obsession to where he has created the World Speed Project and has thousands and thousands of copies of the speed. Now, of course, we can giggle at this and we can laugh about this a little bit. And, but if you really, really think about it, it's actually quite sad, isn't it? That your purpose in life, that your aim in life, what your goal is in life is to own every copy of Speed or to make sure that people don't use the phrase comprised of. And so I want us to look at the question today and truthfully answer what drives us, what makes us tick, what is our ambition? Do we have an ambition like Brian or Ryan or do we have a holy ambition like Paul? And so let's go ahead, in honor of God's word, we'll go ahead and stand. We'll read together Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 20. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've taken care of us. We thank you that you've um, created the church so we can gather and open your word. 
And we're thankful that we can even pray to you. And you are a God that hears us and a God that rejoices and enjoys when his people pray to him. And you enjoy to be kind and gracious to your children, Lord. And so we thank you that that is the type of God. You are that type of God that we serve and that we get to worship, Lord. So be with us today, Lord. I pray that, Lord, as we're preaching the word, if there's someone, people in here that don't know you, that doesn't know what it means to be a Christian, Lord, that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, Lord, that they would love Christ. And for us believers who are here today, Lord, I pray that we would be challenged to ask, Lord, what would you have for me in my life? And that we would, um, as a result of looking at your word together, that we would be a little bit more like Jesus when we leave, Lord. So we love you. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Just let me go ahead and give you my uh, points real quick, just so you can maybe track and see where I'm going and maybe follow along a little bit better. Um, but in this, I'm going to break it up into four points. The first one being Paul's foundation, that Paul's foundation, the inclusion of all peoples, um, which is just kind of looking at what drives, what theology drives um, Paul's ambition. And so we'll, in our verses, we have the gospels for everyone, but we'll pull in some other truths, um, theological truths about salvation. Um, the second We'll see Paul's satisfaction, the maturity of the believers where, you know, Paul oftentimes gets the title pioneer missionary in which rightfully so. Um, but within his pioneering work, there is a deep desire for pastoral care. There's a deep desire for discipleship. Point three, we'll be looking at Paul's dedication. So the work of Paul and the work of the spirit. And so here we'll be looking at the Paul's work and how. Um, Paul's work and the Spirit's work coincide with one another and how Paul works through the power of the Spirit or because of what Christ has done. And then lastly, we'll end with Paul's Paul's ambition, the ministry of Paul to the unreached, um, which where we get the title reaching through teaching how Paul's desire to reach the nations, to reach the unreached people groups came through a deep discipleship and a building up of the local churches that were already established. And so points one and three is going to kind of be the theological framework, what drives Paul. And then points two and four will deal more with, well, how does Paul does, how does Paul do missions? What is his methodology? So first looking, we're going to look at Paul's foundation, the inclusion of all peoples from verses eight through 12. And I want to start here because theology is important. Doctrine is important. We are Southern Baptists for a reason because we subscribe to the doctrine that they subscribe to. And it's important to know what you believe uh, because really a right understanding and a correct biblical knowledge is going to empower you to be able to do ministry and really not just ministry. It's everyday things in life, right? The having a correct view on marriage and knowing that marriage is supposed to be reflect how Christ loves the body of the church and how Christ sacrificially gave himself up. Well, as a husband, that's going to affect the way that, well, it should affect the way that I treat my wife, right? And, or the church, having a correct view of the church and knowing what the scriptures speak about the church is going to hopefully drive that church's mission. And it's going to uh, do how the church, or it's going to affect how the church does government, the role of the pastor, what's the role of the deacon, what's the role of the members, Theology and doctrine matter. And so it's no different whenever we come to missions, how you how you view yourself, how you view God, how you view people, how you view salvation. That's going to affect the way that you go about doing your ministry missions. It's really important, right? If you have a if it's all about all these people are just so lost, I just need to go to them. They need to hear. Well, while that's true, those people are going to hate you. 
And oftentimes in those, uh, in the 1040 window, in those dangerous countries, they're going to want you dead. And it's going to take a lot more than the love for the people to keep you on the field and to um, help you to sustain what God has called you to do. So theology is important. And throughout the book of Romans, it is theologically rich, especially in terms of salvation, talking about salvation, justification, how one can be made right with God. We see in Romans, we see the theology that drives Paul to where he can say and he can be faithful in when he says, my ambition is to go where the gospel hasn't been. And even in our, unli- and even in our own lives, it's not always easy to be a Christian. It's not always popular to be a Christian. We're labeled very intolerant people and all this stuff and in a lot of areas We are not liked, and it's going to be a proper view of ourselves, a proper view of God, a proper view of salvation to help us to be faithful and to help us to want to share Christ with those. And so before we get to um, verse 8 in Romans 15, let's just, I want to do a real quick flyby of the kind of the different areas of salvation, the different theology of the different doctrines that we see um, that Paul, that Paul lays out throughout the book of Romans. And so in the first in the first three, four chapters, Paul very clearly shows that he believes that all people have sinned, that there is a need for salvation, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And he also says um, in, within Romans one that there's no excuse for people not to believe in God because the creation speaks that there is a creator, that our conscience um, testifies to yourself that there is a creator and within those first four chapters, not only is the need for salvation or our sin presented, but also the provision for salvation. In Romans three twenty one through 26, we read, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so within that verse, you see the, the provision or um, that God provided a way for salvation to happen. It tells us that Jesus Christ was put forward as a propitiation. And then we see what flows from that, that we can be redeemed, that we can be bought by the blood of Christ that we can be justified by his grace as a gift, that we can be made right in front of God, and that we can even be declared righteous, the righteousness of Christ given to us and our sin put on Christ. So through Romans 1 through 4, we see the need of salvation, the provision of salvation. And then as we move on, you kind of get to see, okay, what does salvation accomplish? What is the result of salvation? In chapter 5, we're told that we have Freedom from the wrath of God. In chapter 6, we have freedom from sin. In chapter 7, we have freedom from the law. And in chapter 8, we have freedom from death. And then as we move on, we, Paul gets into the scope of salvation in, Roman, or in Romans chapters 9 through 11, that Jews and Gentiles are all, are all able to be saved and included in the family of God. So we have the scope of salvation. And so this is the theology of salvation that drives Paul, right? We all have sinned, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And for those who believe we are made righteous, we are justified, we are redeemed because of the propitiation, because of the provision that God has made through Christ on our behalf. 
And as a result, we are free from the wrath of we are free from God's wrath and all we know is grace and love. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are freed from the impossible um, demands of the law. And uh, as a result, everyone is able to know Christ. So we get to our, we get to finally get to Romans 15 and we read in eight, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So what Paul is saying here in Romans, in the book of Romans, where anyone can be saved, this isn't something new. This isn't something that Paul came up with. This is something that's been God's plan from the very beginning. From the very beginning in the garden when God created Adam and Eve and created them in his image, he said he told them to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth because God desired for there to be a world a world full of worshipers in every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. And then we know kind of how the story plays out. Sin enters the garden, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. And, but then right after sin enters the world, we have the first promise of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, that there would come one where the serpent would strike his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. Then, now that sin has entered the world... God still gives the command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And we see this over and over. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And man starts to sin. And as we continue on, we have the first murder. And it gets so bad to where it says the world has grown so corrupt that God sent a flood. And in his grace, he saved Noah and his family. And after 40 days, Noah and his family leave the flood. And we hear the same thing. Be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. God's plan had not changed that he desires to have a world full of worshipers. Not much later, a couple chapters later in Genesis, we get to the Tower of Babel where we see once again the disobedience of the people instead of multiplying and filling the earth, making much of God. They decide that they're going to settle, build a tower, make a name for themselves, which that was their first mistake. God wants to be praised throughout all the nations. They said, let's make it much of ourselves. And the second thing, they said, well, let us stay here lest we be scattered. Directly going against this command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So then God comes down. Uh, he spreads them on his own. And then we have the, instead, and he says, well, I'm going to um, confuse their language, give them all different languages. And then he disperses them. And so now we have the nations. And then we have... People who speak different languages, and I promise you, Crystal and I hate the Tower of Babel people. Now that we're in language school trying to learn Spanish, we despise them a lot. And so what is God going to do? But in the very next chapter, we see the call of Abram, where he goes to a pagan worshiper, Abram, and calls him and says, I am going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. And then this gets passed on um, from... Abram to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. And so God's plan, and on this side of the cross, we ultimately know that that blessing is going to be Christ, right? Through Christ, these nations are going to be blessed. But God's desire for Gentiles to worship him and Gentiles to glorify him is nothing new in Romans. It is something that God has planned, has ordained, has made from the very, very beginning. And that is very good news for us. So let us pause. Let us think of, well, what is, you know, what this is good news for us. What does this mean to us? Well, first of all, 
For those who aren't Christians here, for those of you who are unbelievers, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, the Bible is very, very clear. And I say this with the mo- as much love as possible, that you are under the wrath of God and a Christless hell awaits you. But there's definitely hope in Romans 10. It says, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So today, I don't care if you are black, white, brown, green, yellow, or some shade in between. And I don't really care how grave or how much you say that, well, my sin is so great. And I don't care how unworthy you think you feel. Well, in reality, if we were going to talk about that, you're sin is much more damning and much more grave than what you could even imagine. That's what it took. To, that's why Christ came, because you sin. And if you feel unworthy, that's good, because you are definitely much more unworthy than what you know. You do not deserve, we do not deserve, that Jesus came and died for us. That's not something we deserve. But... That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. That is what the cross is all about. That God loves us despite us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what makes grace so amazing. So if you do not know Christ, this salvation, this gospel is for you. It's for all Gentiles, all Jews, every person, every tongue, tribe and language you can know god and so i implore you repent and believe now for those who are believers what an unbelievable picture of god's faithfulness whenever it says god's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs god said this thousands and thousands of years ago and then christ comes the promised redeemer has come so what does this tell us about god but that god is Truthful, that he is faithful. What God says, God does. And so anything else in the Bible, this should give us extreme confidence that God will do exactly what he says he will do. When he says that I go away to prepare a place for you, that I will come one day, that therefore there is no condemnation in those who are Christ Jesus. We can bank on it because our God has said it and our God is faithful and he keeps his promises. Really, no amens. Like, seriously. But notice, it was the confidence in God's character and God's word that drove him to be able to carry out his proper ambition. A proper theology is important. But notice that in the next verses, whenever we get to verse 13 and 14, it's not merely just the salvation of the believer that's important, but it's the maturity of the believer. It's that that believer becomes discipled. And in verse 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace, and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So here we see the results of salvation, right? One that is saved, God fills them with a joy and with a peace and with a hope. And so a joy of knowing their creator, knowing the one that saved them, a peace that You were once an enemy of God, but now you're reconciled with God. You no longer know God's wrath, but only his grace, love, mercy, maybe the occasion discipline. And that we have hope and that we have hope. But notice, of course, like we can resonate with this, right? Whenever we see someone 
being baptized like Maya or whenever we see someone come to faith in Christ. I mean, there is much reason to celebrate, much to be joyful for that a person was taken from an eternal destination of hell to heaven, enemy to friend. And this gives Paul much joy, but he says his satisfaction comes. But I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So Paul wasn't merely content of just seeing people come to Christ, but seeing them mature and replicate himself to where they can do what Paul is doing. Maybe not exactly as well as Paul. No, one, I mean, there's probably no one in here that could live up to the standards that Paul set, but being able to rightly divide the word of God and to share that and to make disciples. That's what he wanted to see. That's what he wanted to see. And we see it all over his ministry. And I want to impact that a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit more about just the theology that we're going to see in verses 15 through 19. We talk about how Paul is able to do this discipleship, how he's able to do his work. Um, Again, it's going to be helpful to look at verses 15 through 19 and see the work of spirit through Paul. And I'm going to actually hit kind of 15 to 19 twice. And the first time I just want to see how Paul works and then what he says about the work of Christ or the work of the spirit in it, in his life. In verse 15, it says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, and by the powers of signs and wonders by the power of the spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So notice in here, we see a lot of what Paul is doing, but it's almost always coupled with what the spirit is doing in his life or what Christ has done on his behalf. In 15, he says, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. He corrects the church. He sends letters to the church, but then he, it's not just his, Him doing it on his own, he says, because of the grace given to me by God. And in 16, we see that he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So he ministers to the Gentiles and priests in the priestly service of the gospel of God. But he also realizes that even within his work, they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's how the Gentiles are made right with God is through the Holy Spirit. And then it says, I have reason to be proud of my work. So he works, but he says, in Christ Jesus, it's what Christ has done on my behalf. It's what Christ has allowed me to do, what he has prepared me to do. In 18, he says, to speak, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. But again, he says, it's what Christ has accomplished through me. I couldn't do this on my own, but it's what Christ has accomplished through me. And then verse 19, where it says, by the powers of signs and wonders, He says he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. But even then, he says it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so back and forth, you see, I did this, but it wasn't me. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Or I did this, but it was because of what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished on the cross that has enabled me and empowered me to be able to do this service. And so this should give us extreme confidence, especially if for those that maybe are... It's not that you're ashamed, but you're just a little shy about maybe sharing your faith or 
maybe it, just how are they going to respond? Are they going to ridicule me? Is it going to, uh, you know, it's all in God's timing. I don't want to, you know, do you have that kind of hesitation to be able to share the gospel? But this should give us extreme confidence that we need to be faithful. Paul worked his tail off. He endured hardship after hardship. He shared the gospel. He was willing to suffer for the gospel. And the whole time it's, he was saying, but it's the power of the spirit. And I mean, is this not just a picture of what it, what Jesus had said and when he gave the Great Commission and he told us to go, but he says, all authority has been given to me. Go. Or go because I will always be with you. God always gives. He calls us to do a work, but he equips us to be able to do that work. And so, let's go ahead and we'll... To go, we'll run through those verses again because I want to see. I want us to take a look at the ministry of Paul. I want us to take a look at his methodology. We see, we have seen the theology that drives him, his doctrine of salvation, and we see that his doctrine of himself. We see the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So let's look about. Let's look a little at the methodology or Paul's ambition, the ministry of Paul that we see in verse twenty. But I'm actually going to read parts of fourteen through twenty just so we can see the work that. Paul said he does. Again, in 14, he says that he is satisfied because they are uh, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. In 15, but on some points I have written to you very very boldly by way of reminder. Um, 16, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. In verse 18, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And then we pick up in 19, by the power of signs and wonders. By the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So here it's very clear. Paul's ambition is clearly pioneering missions. To go where there's no churches. To go where the gospel has not been gone. And to see people saved from those groups, that's his end goal. And so, this idea, I mean, what a much better ambition than Brian and Ryan. That the idea for, that he's going to take the gospel to every nation, tribe, worshiping at the Savior's feet. And let's, let's break it down. We'll look at goal and method. And first of all, this is a goal that's a very worthy goal for today as well. Because right now, still, in 2,000 years after, after Christ, there is roughly one-third of the population that belongs to unreached people groups or people groups that have not heard the gospel or have very, very limited access to the gospel. And there's not a national church there that is able to reach their own. And so of this one-third, every day, 50 50,000 people die and go to hell and 50,000 from this one third of these people groups, 50,000 die every day and go to a hell of a, to a Christless eternity, to a hell where they haven't even had the opportunity to respond to the gospel. And so just to break that down, so it kind of hits home a little bit more in the two hours that we've been here since Sunday school to now, 4,200 people have not heard the gospel and have died. And so that makes me very, very thankful for 
organizations like Operation World, Joshua's Project. These organizations have helped identify where these unreached people groups are, how we can pray for them, what are their, what's the prayer needs that they have. Um, you know, they've helped with the create resources and, you know, those maps on the wall with all the green dots, yellow dots, where we can visually see where these unreached people groups are located. And I'm thankful to be Southern Baptist in the sense that we have come together as a, uh, as a group of churches and the IMB has been formed and their, and their, their focus is to go to these places where the gospel hasn't been and to plant churches. And so there is an urgency and we need to respond to that urgency. But at the same time, I think we need to be, we need to be careful and we need to use wisdom and we need to use strategy into how, how we go about doing that. I think of in Matthew, whenever Jesus looks out and he's, he's with his disciples and he said he looked out among the crowd and he had compassion for them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And so if, if I'm there and I, and we see a need we think the best thing, well, hurry up, go meet that need. Go, go, go. But Jesus didn't tell his disciples, hurry up and go, bring them to me. He said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers. Because he realized that we need, in order to have long-term benefits for the gospel to take root for um, the best and most, or the biggest work to be done, doesn't always just mean hurry up, go, 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 go. And I think maybe within... Um, Maybe within our generation, we have felt that urgency. We have been made aware of those people groups um, that need the gospel. And maybe that we have, in some areas, neglected the part that says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And which, for, for me, this was made clear. Um, in 2017, I led a trip to Ecuador through the organization that I'm a part of now, Reaching and Teaching. And I got to meet the pastors there, and these pastors were amazing. They loved the Lord. They loved their church. They wanted to serve the church well. Um, but during one of the question and answer times, the pastor, a pastor, a pastor, so keep in mind, this is a pastor, asked, well, was it before or after the resurrection that Jesus became a Christian? And it breaks your heart. And I, I can't, you know, there... Hearing those things, you can't think that that's what our Lord meant whenever he said, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so there is a deep need for discipleship as well. And so our, uh, the founder of Reaching and Teaching said this. He said, missions does not equal reaching the unreached. If all that means is praying a sinner's prayer. Jesus said, go and make disciples. If we would have done so all these years, we would have a global missions force instead of pages filled with listed, lists of unreached people groups. We need all of God's people going into all of the world, obeying all of the Great Commission. So please don't mishear me that, like, oh, I'm not saying uh, we shouldn't go to unreached people groups. Oh, we definitely need to go. But if we would have disciple, if we would focus on discipleship like we should have in the areas that we have gone already, we would have a larger force that would be going to these unreached people groups. And so, and we'll see this. In Paul's ministry, his, his is the perfect picture of missions being done in such a way that 
all of the Great Commission is being accomplished, going to where the gospel hasn't gone and teaching them to obey all that he commanded. And we, in Paul's ministry, we see a balance. We see a balance of uh, church strengthening and leadership development as well as pioneer evangelism. And in the ministry of Paul, we see that Paul's ministry is much pastoral and church strengthening as it is pioneering. And so we see his, amb- his ambition to the reach, the unreached, through his satisfaction that comes along from that discipleship, as we saw in 14. And we see the completion of his work in many areas that we read in verse 19. We see that his completion comes through discipleship. Because Paul didn't merely plant churches and then move on, leaving them to fend for himself. He was driven to complete the full task of disciple-making. A task that includes deep discipleship and church leadership training. Who could then carry on and reproduce the work that we hear about in 2 Timothy 2.2. And so for Paul, discipleship of the church and raising up of leaders was not a delay or a hindrance to church planning. Rather, church planning and discipleship were two sides of the same coin. Paul believed that teaching is part of reaching. And we see this in his in um, through Acts, and then we see it through his ministry that, I mean, three of his, in each of his three mi- major missionary journeys, it included return visits to churches that he had already planted. And in fact, his secondary missionary journey was going to all the churches that he went to his, in his first missionary journey. And for instance, the church in Corinth, over a five or six year period time, Paul visited four different, t- or three different times and sent at least four letters that we know of. And constantly, Paul would send men from his missionary team, specifically Titus and Timothy, to go, in, to, go to the churches that he had planted to further teach and to further identify leaders and raise them up. So in verse 19, when Paul says, I have fulfilled the ministry from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, he's not claiming that he personally went and planted or personally reached every city, every town, and every village in that area. Because that, that area from Jerusalem to Illyricum, just to give us kind of an idea, is from here to Los Angeles. He is saying, I have fulfilled the ministry. That's a pretty bold statement, that I have fulfilled the ministry in that area. And it wasn't saying that he reached every single person. But Paul knew that a strong, healthy national church with well-trained leaders was the best means for spreading the gospel, of reaching the unreached, and of planting new churches. And it's this truth that drives um, reaching and teaching. And that's why I love the organization so much because we don't look to just build one church and say that we look at building up leaders who can then go out. And I think, I think Paul knew that this was the best way to have generational impact, the way that the work would last and not die. If you go in, and we see it even with the pastors when we went to Ecuador, and you go in and you plant a church... Well, they believe something, right? And so with among these people, they believed in Mama Pacha, which is basically like Mother Earth that um, Mother Earth gives you. It's Mother Earth that provides for you. If you take care of Mother Earth, she'll take care of you. If, you're, if you experience death or you experience famine or the crops aren't coming up, it's because you've taken away too much from Mama Pacha. And so even among the pastors... There was one time, and I didn't know what was going on. I saw someone later pull, pull this brother aside and, and talk to him and correct him. And, um, but he was drinking a Coke, and when he got about that much left in the bottle, he just 
dumped it out. Didn't think, you know, I saw it. I was just like, well, whatever. It's a waste of coke. It's hard to get up here in the mountains, but whatever. But later come to find out that, well, that was his offering to Mama Pacho. A pastor of a Christian church, just his offering to Mama Pacho. And so whenever you don't have deceit, deep discipleship that takes place, you're going to have that, at best, syncretism. And at worst, after a generation, that church is going to be no more. Or it's going to be so far gone that it's not going to be teaching anything of the gospel that we have. And so Paul knew that in order for a church to be sustained, in order for generational impact for the gospel to be there for generations to come, he had to reproduce himself, not merely just plant a church there. And so here's a maybe a little illustration, maybe help with that. So let's say that I am really, really good at sharing my faith. And for the next 33 years, I could lead someone to Christ every single day. Like that would be super impressive, right? Like I would be held a hero. And that is awesome. But let's say that instead my, my focus was I was going to share the gospel with one person. And that person becomes a, a Christian. I'm going to pour my life into them. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to t- show them how to understand the gospel, to read the Bible, to understand it, then to be able to take it and teach someone else to be able to do the same. And so let's say instead of one person every day for 33 years, my goal becomes, okay, just one person a year, but then I want to train them to be able to do the same thing. And so what's crazy is after 33 years, if I see someone come to Christ, disciple them, next year we both do that. And then the next year, everyone involved does that again. At the end of 33 years, it's over 4 billion people who are affected with the gospel. And Billy Graham puts it this way. He says, one of the first verses of scripture that Dawson Trotman, founder of Navigators, encouraged me to memorize was 2 Timothy 2.2. This is like a mathematical formula for spreading the gospel and enlarging, enlarging the church. Paul taught Timothy. Timothy shared what he knew with faithful men. Then faithful men would then teach others also. And this process goes on and on. And if every believer followed this pattern, the church could reach the entire world in one generation. Mass crusades in which I believe and to which I have committed my life will never finish the Great Commission, but a one-to-one ministry will. So Paul's investment in deep discipleship and training in existing churches not only resulted not only in healthy congregations, but it also resulted in the inevitable spread of the gospel and the planting of new congregations. So when done right, teaching will always lead to more reaching because teaching exponentially multiplies the missionaries reaching capabilities. So hopefully we see a little bit through this scripture, we see a little bit of Paul's theology. We see a little bit of his methodology. And so now we ask the question, so what? So what is that? What's Paul's theology? What does Paul's mission mean to us? What is, how does it impact our lives? And so hopefully from what we've talked about today, you can see that first of all, truth matters. Discipleship, matters doctrine matters and in the united states there is for every 235 people there's one trained person that's been trained to be able to um, lead the church one trained person for every 235 
But whenever you get outside of the world, it becomes one in every 450,000 people who are trained to be able to do this. And so I think we are very, very privileged to live in the States. We're very, very privileged to live in Mount Carmel and to be able to hear Pastor Steve preach every morning. Someone who has been trained, someone who can rightly divide the Word of God and Even beyond that, you can walk into so many Sunday schools here and there are men and women who can rightly teach the Word of God because they've had the privilege of being able to sit in a church that does that and they've been able to have opportunities like even Sunday school to be able to do that. And if we we really believe that truth matters and discipleship matters... uh, there would be more people going to Sunday school. There would be more people who would be wanting to go to small groups to open the Word of God together. At best, we have taken it for granted, or at worst, we just we don't think that the Bible is what it is, that it's the Word of God, that it's needed to live in a way that's honoring to God, that it is needed to do all those things that we talked about with marriage and church and all that. Don't take that for granted. I've met too many pastors who love the Word of God so much that they're willing to walk eight hours through the mountains to be able to go to hear someone who has had the privilege of growing up under someone that can teach. Not even seminary, but someone that can teach a Bible-believing church or in a Sunday school that can rightly divert the Word of God. So I think... Through this, we need to be realize that discipleship matters, and discipleship happens within the church. It happens one-on-one, yes, but those relationships are built within the church. Um, and if you are coming and hearing, the, and hearing from the Scriptures for 30 minutes once a week, that's not, a, that's not sufficient. So I think you should go to Sunday school. Shout out to Sunday school director. And secondly, we need, I mean, when faced with this and we see what Paul has done, we see his ambition. Like we need to ask, what, what about us? What is our ambition? So don't be a Ryan or a Brian. Don't live for something. This, I mean, Ryan and Brian, like it doesn't even have any earthly importance, let alone an eternal importance. There's, there's that one English teacher. That's very important if you just write it the first time. But be like a Paul. Have a holy ambition. Have an ambition that reaches to the farthest parts of the world and that has eternal significance. Do and be faithful is what, called you, what God has called you to do. And when I, when I mean have a, an ambition that reaches to the farthest parts of the world... I'm not saying everyone be a missionary. I can remember my junior year of college, me and Casey were at Youth Encounter. And obviously we were the security people in charge of protecting a Big Daddy Weave and Barlow Girl. No big deal. Um, but I remember that night we were part of our collegiate ministry and we were sitting on the Well, I was sitting there because basically what that meant for me and Casey at the time or Griff back in the day, what that meant for Bubby and Griff was that we could go pretty much anywhere we wanted throughout the arena because we had a security shirt on. 
we were really bad at our job. So whenever, whenever the, the preacher was up and the band was up, like, you know, I was towards the front. But it, up, whenever the, one of the preachers was speaking, up on the, up on the map they had, you know, we talked about uh, Joshua Project and Operation World. They had one of those classic maps of the green dots, yellow dots, and red dots. And I remember growing up, Crystal would make comments, like she felt like she felt like she was called to missions even while in high school and having friends who had a heart for missions. And my response was, I mean, almost verbatim, that is great, but I will never do that. I'm not going to do it. And it was that night that began a six to seven month kind of journey that the Lord took me on where he actually called me to what I said I was never going to do and gave me a, and gave me a heart for the mission. So whenever I say have a holy ambition that reaches the farthest parts of the world, I'm not saying are, you should be a missionary. I'm saying, like me, that night, I felt convicted that my, that my response towards my Lord and Savior was, that's great, but I'll never do that. But just be willing and do it, do it frequently, do it often. Pray and say, Lord, whatever you have for me, I will do it. There's nothing that's going to be like, that's great, but I'm not going to do that. But a willingness to do whatever the Lord has called you to do. And if you have done that, if you, have, if you are seeking after the Lord and you are constantly asking yourself, Lord, what would you have for me? And the Lord says, I want you to be a stay-at-home homeschool mom. Well, praise the Lord. You would not honor God anymore by going to the Middle East and dying for him over there than being faithful what the Lord has called you to do here. So don't mishear me. But be faithful at what the Lord has called you to do. Look at where, where can I disciple? And that starts at home. Like, start with your kids, but also, like, with your work and sharing the gospel there. And pour into those. Share your faith. And use yourself to edify the church. Get involved in the local church. There is nothing more beautiful than being involved in a small group and sharing and pouring into each other's lives and how one, as one iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another, just the community that that builds. And then whenever a unified church, what they can do for the Lord to reach the nations. And so be willing to do whatever the Lord has called you to do. And I'll end with this, this little I, lo- I mean, I love this. I love the story of David Livingstone. He spent much of his life in Africa for like 40 years and when, from England. When he comes back, he's speaking at Cambridge to a group of people. And so he's, and he says this because, I mean, after spending years and years and the majority of your life on the mission field, I'm, you know, you hear, I'm sure he heard like, oh, what a sacrifice. What a sacrifice. That's awesome. But he says this whenever he was talking to... The students, he said, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much time in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, a peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is em- it's emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. He says, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger. Now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences of this life, 
may make us cause, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver in the soul to speak in the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for of us. And he ends his speech with, I never made a sacrifice. So pour yourselves out for the Lord. Pour yourselves out. Your energy, your resources, all your efforts. And I promise you a life. Have a holy ambition. And I promise that at the end of the lives, when you're standing before God, you will say nothing but what sacrifice. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for um, the example that we have in Paul of him taking the gospel, uh, him willing to um, give up his life to be able to serve you and what you've called him to do. So, Lord, to the people here, Lord, I pray that we would be honest, that we would be that we would ask the question, Lord, what would you have for us? Lord, are our hands truly open? Are we willing to. Um, Do whatever you would have us do, Lord. So we thank you, Lord, that you love us. We thank you that you have saved us, Lord. And what a privilege it is to be able to do your work, Lord. So thank you for that. And we love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Praise God for his word this morning. We're reminded, as Brandon shared with us, the gospel this morning that that what saves us is not ourselves. He began to, to explain to us what the Bible teaches in, about justification in the early chapters of Romans. And so the first thing I'd say to you before we sing this morning is be sure that you're trusting only in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Not in a time when you were baptized or not in a time where you prayed a nice prayer or no matter how sincere that decision was, I'm asking you the question this morning, are you a follower of Jesus now? Are you, are you born again? Are you in the kingdom? Are, are, are you following Christ? It doesn't matter what happened ten years ago. Are you following Jesus now? Are you trusting only in Jesus right now? That's it. Those believers continue in faith. Believers, believers are not ones that made a decision a long time ago. True believers are who may have made a decision, but that continues throughout their life. They continue to repent and follow Jesus. So has that happened in your life? And if not, you're not sure, we'd love to talk with you more about how God may be at work in your heart. Maybe you've not been baptized. We'd love to talk with you about that. Perhaps you're you're a believer. You've been baptized and God's placing some things on your heart uh, about His call in your own life, about what about what discipling others and taking the gospel to others looks like on your mission field. We'd love to talk with you about that. So right now we're going to stand and sing an old hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. And as we sing this hymn together, we, uh, we would invite you to come and pray here at the front if you'd like. You can pray. I can come and talk with me. I'll pray with you during that time. And, uh, but you come if God's speaking right now. We'd love to talk with you. Let's sing together. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God. Until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. 
Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.